Hello friends, this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn, Lonesome Road Ministry, and we're getting ready to have Church on the Road. Hey, we're bringing a church to you right where you're at, in the cab. And we do it in a lot of different ways. We have a radio program, lonesomeroadradio.com. We have podcasts. We have CD ministry. We also have a telephone conference line. So log on to lonesomeroad.org for our podcast and to order some of our CDs. And if you'd like to listen in on our conference line, we get together every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Mountain Time, and 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Just dial this number, 727-731-5062. And we recently had Pastor... Dixie Pebworth with us on the conference line. He's out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, pastors God's Shining Light Church. Powerful, powerful testimony. So buckle up and come right along with us. We're going to have church on the road. up I'm driving when the sun goes down the hum of 18 wheels Lord that's a lonely sound I spend all day chasing that old white line I've been on the road so long I've lost track of time now it don't matter where I'm going I just gotta drive I have the white line fever to the day I gotta see I gotta look around I got diesel smoke rolling From two chrome stacks My address is 408-414 A big blue Mac Now it don't matter where I'm going I just gotta drive I have the white line fever to the day
Yes, the road is our life, and we want to thank you for riding along with us out here on the road. We're getting ready to bring the church to you through one of our conference line calls that we had recently with Pastor Dixie Pebworth. What a great, powerful testimony you're going to hear. But first, I got a great and powerful song by James Payne that I want you to hear. Listen to the words of this song, and then listen to Pastor Dixie Pebworth's testimony, and then we're going to ask you really personal question. Here's James Payne. I fell off the wagon I fell on hard times I even fell For all of old Satan's lies Flat on my back So low I could crawl just when I thought there was no place left to fall I fell on my knees I cried, Lord, help me please You know I can't make it on my own He picked up of my broken heart when I fell on my knees cause there was no place left to fall Lord, I've done things for which I'm not proud I fell in sin, yeah, I did it all Just when I thought there was no place left to fall I cried, Lord, help me, please You know I can't make it on my own He picked up the pieces of my broken heart When I fell on my knees Cause there was no place left to fall I fell on my knees when there was no place left to fall Alright friends, get ready for one powerful testimony by Pastor Dixie Pebworth I met Pastor Dixie 
about a year ago down at uh, Nashville at a radio broadcast conference. When I met him, it was a setup. God set us up. We started talking and we found out that we had something in common. We both were friends with a guy by the name of Tony Mac McMullen. And the whole time we stood there and talked, God was just all over both of us. I mean, the Holy Ghost bumps were just rolling across both of us as we talked. And I told Dixie I wanted to get his testimony on a CD and on a podcast and get it out across the country, just like I did for Tony Mac. And he handed me his book and told me to contact him. And we would set up a time and date to get his testimony on a CD. So I read his book and what a powerful book it was. Death Was My Next Step was the title of the book. And what a powerful testimony Pastor Dixie has. He's the, well, I'll just let you listen to his testimony. And then you're going to find out all about Pastor Dixie and how to contact him. So thanks for being on the conference line tonight, Pastor Dixie. Well, Gary, first off, thank you for this opportunity. You know, I, I just want to glorify God. I, the Lord has really done miracles in my life and has brought me a long, long way. Uh, today, I'm pastoring a church that I founded 20 years ago, and we're averaging about 500 people. Uh, and it's made up of uh, homeless people, people coming out of prison, drug addiction, treatment centers, and domestic violence. And then also I have a housing program, and these are kind of like my set of twins that I started 21 years ago. We help women, uh, women with children. We help men, men with children. Uh, couples uh, restore their lives and couples with families or with children. And it's been an awesome program. We've helped thousands of people. Uh, it's called a sober living program. It's not a shelter. We bring people in to help them to heal the heart and begin to put their lives back together. Our, our foundation scripture that we have is Luke 4.18 and 4.19, where the, the Lord said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to open blind eyes and set at liberty those that are bruised. And we believe that's the mission of Jesus, and, and we've been doing that. Our goal is to save souls and to transform lives. And, you know, my story... I, I was born and raised in Oklahoma City. I, I was actually adopted when I was three days old uh, into a family, and I was the youngest of six kids. And uh, my, I never met my real mom, never met my real dad. Uh, at the age of four, my mother had a car wreck, and uh, it, it broke her neck. And from that time forward, she became a drug addict on prescription medication clear up until she had passed away in 2009. And that was my adopted mother. It's the only mother I ever knew. By the age of 10, I started smoking marijuana. And by the age of 12, I started drinking. By the age of 14, I was in trouble with the law for the first time. I had uh, been arrested for stealing cars. I had seven felonies against me. And, and then by the age of 15, I dropped out of high school. I started running the streets and, and learning about the streets. And then by the age of 18, I went to the prison for the first time. Uh, I was sentenced to two years in prison for second-degree burglary. The only thing that changed is I went down, I did eight months on a two-year sentence, and I learned a new profession. I learned that I could sell drugs and support my drug habit uh, instead of stealing to support my drug habit. And so when I came out of prison, I, I had met my new wife in prison. Uh, she had gotten pregnant with my oldest son at that time. She was 15 and I was 20. And 
Today I would be arrested for that, but I'd actually met her mother first, and her mother became my best friend, and she's the one who introduced me to her daughter, and her goal was is that she knew I would help her daughter finish high school, and so that's what we did, and today my wife and I are still married today. We're, we've been together for 39 years, and, and God has blessed us with three sons and, and two daughter-in-laws and uh, nine grandchildren, and uh, and it's just been a great blessing. And so, but whenever I started sell, selling drugs, I just really started out with marijuana. And then I started selling some LSD, some acid on the streets. And, and then back then I started dealing in cocaine and then I started dealing in methamphetamine. And over the years, my habit became really bad. I, I became a person that I really didn't want to be. I was very angry already in life. I was very bitter and mean. Uh, I got I robbed one time. I started carrying a gun everywhere I went. Uh, there was times I kicked in people's doors and times I held guns on people's faces and times I beat up people and I, and I really became a person I didn't want to be. I was just, I was selling drugs and destroying people's lives. During that time, I'd accumulated about a $500 a day cocaine habit mixed with methamphetamine and uh, there would be days I would go without sleep and days I'd go without eating. And probably during that time, if it wouldn't have been for the alcohol I was drinking, I'd have probably died because that was the only thing giving me calories. And so in that, it was uh, March the 5th. Or, well, let me stop there for a moment. In, in 1986, uh, my mom and dad, my adopted mom and dad, went and visited my grandmother for Christmas. And my grandmother was uh, the only avenue I, where I met Jesus. She was a Pentecostal grandmother, and she just loved Jesus. And you'd go to Grandma's house, and she'd be singing praises in the kitchen while she was making a homemade meal. And, and she always talked about Jesus. Grandpa would roll his eyes every time she started talking, but she just loved the Lord. And But when my mom and dad went to visit her, when my mom got back to Oklahoma City, she called me on the phone, and she said, I don't know what you're doing, but I promised your grandmother I would call you and let you know that she's praying for you. And I thought to myself, Grandma praying for me? Grandma don't know what's going on with me. And so I just kind of hung up the phone and just discarded it. Well, during that time, I was probably at the heyday of my, my drug dealing. My front door was like a Walmart center. Uh, I mean, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I was selling drugs. And uh, on March the 5th, 1987, uh, I just sold out of drugs, and, and I went to score some more drugs. And I left my house about 9.30 at night. I stopped by a, a convenience store right on the corner of my house, on the block of my, where my house was, and I went in, got a six-pack of beer and two packs of cigarettes, and came walking out. And when I came walking out, I heard a car squalling around the corner. And I looked up, and it was a black-and-white police car. It was behind it, another black-and-white. Behind it, a van, a Suburban, another black-and-white. It was about 10 cop cars in all. Uh, it was the DEA, the ATF, and the Oklahoma City Narcotics Agents. And in my heart, I kind of knew where they was going. So I walked over to a pay phone and I called my house because that was before cell phones ever came out. And I called my house and I had a guy by the name of George that would answer my phone because had I been in that house, I would have been in the back bedroom dealing drugs. I had a gun underneath my, in my top dresser drawer. I had a gun underneath my mattress. And, you know, because I'd been robbed once before, I swore I'd never been robbed again. And that's where I would have been sitting at that time. As George answered the phone, I said, George, I don't want to scare you, but I want you to look outside and tell me where those 10 cop cars just went, came flying around the corner. 
And so George lays the phone down, and I'm listening. And about that time, bam, I heard the cops kick the door in. And uh, then I heard the guns clicking. I heard the cops screaming. Uh, but then I heard my wife scream, who was in the house. And then I heard my three-and-a-half-year-old son scream. And then my mind went back to my seven-day-old son that had just been brought home from the hospital. And, uh, you know, all my hopes and dreams was in that house, Gary, and everything I ever dreamed about and wanted. I loved my family, but the sad thing is I didn't know how to be a husband, and I didn't know how to be a father. And so I thank God to this day for my praying grandmother because I truly believe that that's why I wasn't in the house. And uh, because had I been in that house, I believe I would have came out of that back bedroom with a gun, and I believe that I could have been shot by the police. Uh, as I stood there and listened for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they didn't know that I was on the phone at the time. And uh, so I, I just, after about 20, 30 minutes, I hung up the phone and went to a motel that night. And about three to four hours later, I called my house, and my wife had actually answered the phone, and, and she said they didn't take anybody to jail they just want you to turn yourself in by 9 o'clock in the morning, and they won't arrest anybody but you. And uh, so in that, I turned myself in the next morning. Uh, they wanted me to set up five control buys, and I wouldn't do that. And uh, so they locked me up and filed charges against me in the Oklahoma City County Jail. It took my wife about two weeks to get me out of jail. Uh, she had to go collect money of people who owed me money and uh, the bond I had, I want to say, was about $50,000, and back then that was a lot of money. And, and in that, she took her about two weeks. And you would think from there that I would have learned a lesson, but the reality was is I had to go back selling drugs because uh, that was the only way I knew how to make money. And I needed to get a lawyer so I could try and beat the charges. And I decided to take this to a jury trial because when the police kicked in the door, there was eight other people in my house. And they found guns and they found drugs, but they didn't find me. And uh, they didn't arrest anybody but me the next day. And so I felt many ways that I could beat the charges. The house wasn't in my name. None of the bills was in my name. And the only thing that could link me to that house was my, my wife. And she couldn't really testify against me in a court of law on that day because it was a felony charge and she couldn't testify against me. And so in that, I, I went to jury trial. On October the 7th, 1987, I was found guilty in a jury trial. The jury had found me guilty on three of the four charges. On count one, it was possession of cocaine, uh, and their jury recommended a 30-year sentence. On count two, they found me not guilty of an illegal shotgun uh, because what had happened is I had a sawed-off shotgun, but the firing pin had been removed. And so they couldn't charge me with that. They, they found me not guilty. Count three was possession of a weapon while in commission of committing a felony. Because they found other guns in the house and they found a set of scales and the paraphernalia of uh, dealing in drugs, uh, they charged me with possession of a weapon while in commission of committing a felony, which was a violent crime, and the jury recommended a 40-year sentence. And then on count four, they found me in, guilty of possession of a firearm after former conviction of a felony because I'd already been to prison once, once again. And so the judge asked me or asked my lawyer if I wanted to do a pre-sentence investigation before he sentenced me. And at that time, I really thought, you know, it was the best thing to do. I mean, what could it hurt by that time? 
So they locked me up in the Oklahoma City County Jail. And for the next five days, I was in the deepest, darkest black hole I'd ever been in. I get a little emotional about it because I still remember that black hole today. And in that, I was I, I was contemplating suicide. I was, uh, in my opinion, I was demon possessed. I was uh, uh, I was withdrawn from my drug addiction. I was withdrawn from losing my freedom. Uh, I, I had voices in my head telling me I'd never be a husband to my wife again. I'd never be a, a father to my children again. And and I might as well just kill myself and get out of this world. And I laid there at the lowest point of my life for five days, Gary. And uh, during that time, I, I didn't. I was in a dark black hole. When I say the lowest point of my life, I was having to sleep on the floor of that county jail because there were so many men in that in that pod or in that tank that I didn't even have a bed at the time. There was rats and cockroaches, and the the, the county jail had been condemned like you know. 10 years prior to, and and in that, I, I was laying there on the floor one night on October the 12th, and normally in the county jail, the door never pops open past 5 o'clock, uh, but this particular night, uh, the door pops open, and I sat up on my mattress, and, and I, I wanted to know why the door popped open, and about that time, a Baptist preacher came storming through the door, and the first words out of his mouth, Gary, said, I come here to tell you God loves you. And I thought to myself, if God loves me, why am I here? And for the first time in my life, I, I sat up and I listened to what the man had to say. And he didn't condemn me. He didn't attack me about my sin. He didn't, he didn't condemn me to hell or a lake of fire. You know, he told me about the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in John 3:17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him we might be saved. And he, he preached on the prodigal son out of Luke 15. And I remember that night going forward and giving my life to Christ. And I had tears screaming down my face. I, I, I just wept as, a, as the Baptist preacher led me to the Lord. And, and then I, I went back to my bed that night. And then the next day he brought me a Gideon Bible. And uh, he brought me some Bible studies, and, and I started reading the Bible, and it was the first time in my life I'd ever read the Bible, and in that as I was reading, I, I was reading it, every time I'd open that book, it was always based on love. To me, it was God's love reaching out to me in my lowest point of my life, and I would sit there for 8 to 10 to 12 hours and just weep reading this Bible, and all the guys was in the tank, and they was watching me, and, but they left me alone. They never bothered me. For the next two months, that's really what I did. I, I watched Jesus. I, I watched the miracles. I saw him open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and healed the sick and the lame and, and fed the multitudes with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he casted out demons and even raised the dead. And, but he declared the kingdom of God until his return. And in that, it was his love that I saw more than anything reaching out to God's creation. In that, I, I just felt in my life and in my heart that God was going to set me free. And uh, my sentencing date was December the 2nd, 1987. And I got up real early that morning, and I went uh, I, and I started reading the Bible, and God took me to Matthew chapter 6, and, you know, really stood out was uh, 633, where it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these other things will be added into you. 
and take no thought of tomorrow, for tomorrow will take thought in itself, but the evil is present there today. And so I just felt really hard, that God, or really strongly, that God was going to do a miracle in my life. So they took me to court. Uh, they put me in handcuffs and shackles and took me up uh, or took me down in the elevator. As I got off the elevator, my wife was there, and she had my youngest son there because they didn't bring my oldest one because they felt it would be too hard on him. And then my mother-in-law was there. My mom was there. I had a brother that was there, a brother, a sister-in-law. And there was about eight people in the in the courtroom. They wouldn't let me talk to them, wouldn't let me say anything to them. And, and I went in, and, and I, it was like I was the only one in the courtroom. And the judge came in and it took me right up front immediately. And the DA, he asked the DA, he says, what do you recommend? And the DA says, we just want what the people recommend, and that's 80 years. And he asked my lawyer if I if he had anything to say, and my lawyer had some stuff to say, but it really didn't mean a lot. I mean, he didn't really say anything worth saying. And and then uh, you know he asked me if I had something to say, and man, I had a lot to say, but and for some reason the Holy Spirit of God wouldn't let me say anything at all. And and the reason why I believe this is because I was guilty. I was guilty of sin. I didn't think I was that bad of a person to be sentenced to 80 years of prison, but, you know, I, I knew I was guilty of sin. I'd done some wrong in my life. And the judge began to sentence me, and he sentenced me to 30 years in the Department of Corrections. He sentenced me to 40 years in the Department of Corrections. He sentenced me to 10 years in the Department of Corrections. And he said, I run it all consecutive, and I sentence you to 80 years in prison. And it hit the gavel. And uh, needless to say, my... My knees buckled, uh, my my tears shot down my face. Uh, if you'd have been in the courtroom with my family, you would have thought they was at my funeral. And the reality of it was, they really was, because that was the day I died, really. And uh, as I was leaving the courtroom, they wouldn't let me speak to my family or anything. And, and so I went on back upstairs to my cell and it was funny because I walked into my cell and I sat down on my bunk. By this time, I had moved up to a bunk. And these guys gathered around me and they said, what happened? I said, I got sentenced to 80 years today. And, you know, they just couldn't believe it. And, and everyone started asking me the question, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know one thing I'm not going to do, and I'm not going to stop reading this book. And I picked up the Bible and I started reading all over again. And, you know, my first thoughts whenever I got sentenced to eight years is, where's God? Where's God? And as I started reading the Bible, uh, the uh, I went to a visit. I got a visit from my wife's sister because my, my, my wife had already came to see me the day before. And in the Oklahoma County Jail, you could only visit through a plate glass window talking on a telephone receiver. And so my wife's sister came to see me, and I told her to, tell my wife that to read Matthew chapter 633 because it didn't do anything for me. And as I was leaving the visiting room, uh, the man who led me to the Lord, his name was Bud Ham. And he walked up and he looked like he was lost. And I walked up and put my arm around him. I said, Bud, I need to go pray. He said, what do we need to pray about? And I said, Bud, I got sentenced to 80 years today. And he looked at me in the eye and said, we're going to go pray about this. And so I went on back to my cell, and about 30 minutes later, he came and got me and took me into a lawyer's room, because back then the chaplains could get you out of your cell. He took me into a lawyer's booth, and, you know, him and this other gentleman, we, we bowed our heads, and this other gentleman prayed first. I don't even know who he was. And Bud had prayed, and then I prayed. And, and I, I prayed for three things that day, and I remember it like it was yesterday. The first thing I prayed for was a contact visit with my wife before I went to prison. 
because I of my sin and because of my, my abuse, I had destroyed our family. And my wife was 19 years old now, and she had to raise two sons by herself. And I really just wanted to hold her in my arms and ask her to forgive me for my, for my sin and ask her to forgive me for what I had done. The second thing I prayed for was for my wife and I to be reconciled and put back together better than what it ever was. And then the third thing I prayed for was my freedom. And I prayed for him in that order. And there's times in my life I wish I had switched the order, but other than that, that's just what, the way I prayed. And whenever I got up from the table and I went back into my cell, there was something that happened as I walked through the door of my cell. And it was like a peace that came over me, a peace that passed all understanding. And uh, I went and sat down on my bunk, and these guys kept on rallying around me, what are you going to do, what are you going to do? And that's whenever I had said, that I know one thing I'm not going to do, and that's stop reading this book. And I started reading the Bible all over again. And I believe that was on a Wednesday. Thursday, nothing happened. Friday, nothing happened. Saturday and Sunday, nothing happened. And Monday morning, they told me to get dressed and go up to the captain's office about 9 o'clock. And as I walked into the captain's office, my wife was sitting in his office, and he says, do you know this lady? I said, yeah, that's my wife. And he says, you got 15 minutes. And I had a contact visit with my wife. Now, some people wouldn't think anything about that contact visit, but for me, that contact visit meant everything in the world. I just grabbed my wife and held her in my arms, and I was weeping as she began to tell me what had happened. And what had happened is on that Saturday morning, my, my oldest son got a hold of a Zippo cigarette lighter that I had received for Father's Day the year before. And he went back into the back bedroom, of the house that she was living in and she and he set some clothes on fire and came running out and closed the door behind me now some people would say that's not of god but this is what i know gary i i was praying for my wife to be moved out of that house because i left her in a drug-infested neighborhood I, I and in that by monday morning uh she came to see me nobody got hurt by Monday morning, everything that she had lost in the fire had been restored by the Red Cross. And I had a contact visit. And uh, the only one who could have ever answered that prayer was God Almighty. So I knew if he heard me for that prayer, he heard me for the rest of it. Well, needless to say, the next day they sent me to Lexington A&R in the state of Oklahoma and locked me up in a, jail, in a, in a, in a prison cell with an atheist. And he got mad at me because I wouldn't quit reading my Bible. And uh, it was really funny because if he's an atheist, he doesn't even believe in God, but he gets mad at me because I'm reading my Bible. I wasn't preaching to him. I wasn't saying nothing to him. I was just reading my Bible. And uh, he, he told me one day, you're going to put down that Bible and prove you're a man. And I told him, I said, look, I'll do what I got to do to survive, but I'm never going to put down this book. And so anyway, they classified me to go to Connors up in Hominy, Oklahoma, or actually classified me to go to Joe Hart. But they sent me to Connors in Hominy, Oklahoma, which was considered in the state of Oklahoma the gladiator school of that day. It was one of the worst prisons in the state. They averaged beatdowns and, and stabbings and killings on a monthly basis. Uh, it was just crazy, really. But also, although that was one of the worst prisons in the state, and that's actually where I met Tony Mack, uh, it also had one of the best chapel programs in the state. And so I could go to church seven days a week, three times on Saturday, or three times on Sunday, and Monday through Friday, and it was really great. I began, the first thing God dealt with me about was he didn't want me being stupid. 
And so I got my GED, and then, he, and then he took me through a business college, and then he took me through a Bible school for three years. And, and in that, you know, it, it transformed my life, and I was doing everything I could to put my life back together. In that, uh, my wife never came to see me in 1988. Uh, she had everyone that I knew had turned their back on me, left me, my family discarded me. Everyone thought I would never get out of prison alive. And they was telling my wife to go on with her life and get over me because I'm never getting out. And my wife came to see me one time, which was on Father's Day of 1988, and she saw something different in me. I wasn't angry no more. I wasn't bitter. I wasn't trying to control her. I wasn't demanding of her. And, uh, but she never really would talk to me that day. Well, on January the 1st, 1989, I got another visit from my wife, but this time... She didn't bring my sons to see me. She came by herself. And uh, we sat there and talked in the visiting room, and, and she had said that while she was in that visit on Father's Day that God never let her forget it. And, uh, what, and so in that, she saw that I was changing my life, and she saw something different. Well, from that day forward, she never missed another visit for three and a half years. And God began to answer the second part of my prayer. After the contact visit, then the reconciliation of my wife and I to be made better than what it ever was before. Well, during this time, a couple of things happened. In 1990, my name appeared on the parole docket. Now, during this time, they told me in Lexington A&R that I had to do a mandatory 10 years of my first sentence before I would ever see the parole board. And these are the miracles of God. This is what God did in my life. In February of 1990, the, my name appeared on the parole docket. To this day, I do not know how my name appeared on that parole docket. I asked my case manager, my counselor, even the parole investigator, how did my name appear on that docket? And they all gave me the same answer. I don't know. You're not supposed to be on that docket. We don't know how that happened. Well, uh, I wrote one letter to each one of the parole board members, and they actually paroled me from my 30-year sentence to my 40-year sentence in two and a half years. And that meant I would start doing my time on my 40-year sentence, which was a violent crime. Uh, during this time, uh, they had, in about 1992, they had begun to build, or actually 91, they had begun to build a minimum security prison uh, on the outside of the medium security prison that I was in. And I was praying for God to take me out there and it was funny because everyone said, no, you can't go out there because you got a 40-year violent crime and plus a 10-year running wild. And I said, okay. So I, I just put it in my father's hand. I said, Father, my, my, my life's in your hands, and if you want me to go out there, you'll put me out there. And it was two weeks to the day when they opened it that they got my, they told me to get my bunk and junk that I was going to the minimum. And uh, so I, they let me go out to the minimum. During that time, uh, I really wanted to go back into the medium because inside the medium, we had great fellowship. Uh, we had a, a men's choir that I was involved in. We had church every night and all this. But when I went to the minimum, they had nothing, no church, no choir, no fellowship. And uh, it was funny because God began to deal with me because I was crying. I wanted to go back into the medium. And God said, no, you got what you prayed for. And I said, I didn't pray for this. And he says, yes, you did. I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. You're in the minimum security. I said, well, God, I want to go back in. There's no church out here. He said, well, start one. And I said, well, I can't do that. I'm an inmate. He said, well, go find out. So 
So I went to the unit manager. And I said, hey, I want to start church service. She says, you do? And I said, yeah. And, I, and she says, when are you going to have it? And I said, on Thursday nights. And she says, where are you going to meet? And I said, in the chow hall. And she said, what time? And I said, 7 o'clock. And, and she turned around and said, okay, you can go. You can start a church. And uh, I was, like, shocked. <laughs> so then I had to go find somebody, some people that wanted to go to church. And so then I did the same thing with a choir. I went to her and said, I want to start a choir. And she says, when do you want to start? And I said, I want to practice on Mondays and Tuesdays. And she said, where at? I said, in the chow hall. And she said, okay. And I, I was like, wow. So then I had to go find guys that wanted to sing. But it was during that time I went through the fire. And uh, God really transformed my life and really helped me to be who I am today. Then on uh, June the 23rd in 1993, the Court of Criminal Appeals ruled on my case. I had an appeal working this whole time. And the Court of Criminal Appeals ruled on my case, and they dismissed and vacated my 40-year sentence. They said that that charge was possession of a weapon while in commission of committing a felony. And I should have never been charged with that because when the police kicked in the door, they found guns and they found drugs. They didn't find me. When I turned myself in the very next day, I didn't have a gun on me. So I should have never been charged with possession of a weapon while in commission of committing a felony. And they dismissed and vacated my 40-year sentence. And that meant that the time that I'd served on the 40-year sentence would roll over onto my 10-year sentence, which meant that I would discharge my 10-year sentence in about three and a half months from the time I got my time uh, commuted or served that I'd already done, uh, credited for my time I'd served. Well, in that, I tell people all the time that God loved me so much that he wrote, rewrote the law in the state of Oklahoma and set me free. It's still on the law books today, Pebworth versus State, and uh, that 40-year that sentence was dismissed and vacated. Well, on January the 24th, 1994, uh, was my discharge date on my 10-year sentence. Now, I still had that 30-year parole sentence that I was waiting on, and, and I, I was waiting for them to tell me where I go report for parole. On the day that my wife uh, was coming to pick me up, I got real scared because I thought that they was trying to set me up and put me back in prison. So I went to my case manager, and I said, hey, where do I go report for parole? And she says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I got a 30-year parole. I paroled in 1990, and I don't want to come back to prison because your people mess up. And she said, wait right here, and I'll be right back. And she went to her office, or she went to the records department, and she came back, and she had this piece of paper in her hand. She said, I don't know what you're talking about, but according to our records, you discharge, and you're a free man. And as long as you have this piece of paper, there's nothing we can do to you. And I said, give me that piece of paper. <laughs> and I, in that, I, I mean, from that day on January the 24th, 1994, I walked out of prison a free man. My wife came to pick me up. She drove from Tulsa, Oklahoma, because by this time she had moved to Tulsa because I needed a new place to start. If I'd have went back to where I came from, it would have produced the same thing all over again. And I wanted to get away from some people down there in Oklahoma City that were still there. Uh, some of my closest friends, they were still selling drugs. They were still doing the wrong thing. And I didn't want to go back into that mess. So uh, we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I've been in Tulsa, Oklahoma ever since then. In uh, 1999, well, actually, in 1995, I started going back into the prison, sharing my testimony. In 1999, I went into full-time ministry. Tony Mack and I used to do uh, tent revivals in the, all over the state of Oklahoma. 
Uh, when I heard Tony Mack got saved, I said, I'll believe that when I see it, because he was a shot caller. He was a, a well-known man in the, in the prison system, and you never mess with Tony Mack. I could witness to him whenever he was in the visitor room because his wife was there, but whenever he was up on the yard, I couldn't talk to him about Jesus. But whenever he got saved, he rocked an entire prison system with Jesus, and it changed his life forever. And, uh, you know, he got on to be with the Lord now, but Tony Mack was an incredible man. In 2001 uh, is when we started our housing program because what had happened, I was going back into the prisons, and I had people asking me, hey, I'm getting out in six months, but I have no place to go. And at that time, we had no place to take them. Uh, we was going into the men's prisons, the women's prisons, and all that. And I had a spiritual father who had a four-story building downtown Tulsa. And uh, I told him about my vision for a housing program. And he said, I'll, I'll pray about it and get back to you. And one day he called me and said, let's talk. And I went and met him, and, and uh, he pulled out a set of keys and said, here's the keys to my four-story building. Start your program, and when the money come in, you pay me. My only requirement is you start with women and women with children. I said, okay, no problem. I thought I could do that pretty easy, and, I, and, and we did do it, but, boy, it wasn't easy in the beginning. But then after that, in 2003, uh, we started our church called God's Shining Light. And uh, our goal was to reach the least of these. We wanted to reach people that other churches didn't want or other churches couldn't minister to. And so we began a church. I didn't want other church people coming. Uh, I wanted to reach the lost. I wanted to win souls to the kingdom of God. And, and, our, and in that, we began to, our church with eight people sitting around a table and so we began to go back into the prisons. We began to do homeless ministry. We began to uh, help people get up on their feet. Three months after we started the church, I had a guy walk into the church, and he said, I see what you're doing with the women. Here's keys to a three-bedroom, two-bath house. When, it, when you get it full and the money comes in, uh, start paying me a lease. And I said, okay. In 2005, uh, we had to move out of the four-story building because it got sold out from underneath us, but... Uh, we got our first set of apartments, and we had two apartment complexes, one for men and one for women. In 2007, we got our new church building, uh, which I set on 18 acres of property, and I got a 14,000-square-foot church. And uh, in 2008, we got our third set of apartments, and then in 2009, we got our fourth set of apartments. And ever since 2009, I've been managing 107 apartments creating sober communities, uh, sober communities with women, sober communities with women with children, sober communities with men, men with children, and then also couples and couples with children because whenever I got apartments, I realized I could minister to the whole family. And uh, it creates a sober community. Uh, and there's guidelines, there's boundaries to it, but it helps a person restore their life. It helps a person to heal their heart. It helps a person to learn how to use the tools from drug treatment or from prison to get back into society functioning as normal citizens. And, you know, it's really worked. I've helped thousands of people. We have powerful testimonies of what, how God has transformed people's lives and healed their broken heart. And a lot of people don't understand to heal a broken heart is like healing a broken arm. And as long as the heart's broken, they can never succeed. But if you keep them still and you find out where the heart is broken and you keep them real still for about, I would say, six months minimum, then the heart begins to heal and they begin to get up on their feet and they begin to enjoy life again. 
So, you know, we've done this for a long time. I'm a blessed man where I'm at. And recently, I just bought a, a motel, an old motel that was ran down right beside our church. And uh, we have started remodeling it. Uh, we're going to have about 80 rooms here in the next eight months to a year. Uh, we're turning the motel rooms into efficiencies so that we can put more people in it and that it makes it affordable uh, to where they can get up on their feet a lot easier. You know, that's my story, Gary. I, you know, I could go on and on of some of the things I've seen God do. Uh, we pulled some people off the streets that was homeless for 18 years. Uh, I got two guys right now that uh, came out of prison. One of them did 38 years and one of them did 27 years. And the one who did 27 years has been out for over three and a half years and works for the ministry and is just an awesome man of God. Uh, I've helped women coming out of prison. I had one lady for 17 years that was in prison come out and restore her life. And the last, about the last five years of her life was the best five years of her life. Uh, probably the biggest one was a man who did 49 years in prison. And he came out of prison in the last five years of his life was the best five years of his life because of our program. And so, Gary, I love you. I appreciate this opportunity to share my, my testimony. I, if I could say anything to the people out there that's listening, I want you to know that God loves you. God's for you. He's not against you. He's trying to save you. He's not trying to punish you. He's trying to help you. He's not trying to hurt you. He wants to transform your life and help you to become all that he created you to be. For God loves you, and God gave his son on the cross to die for you. And if you'll receive that blood and receive that crucifixion, uh, that sacrifice that God had made on the cross, then God will begin to transform your life and put your life all back together again. He was sitting on the steps of the Union Rescue Mission Holding a tattered Bible in his hand I sat down beside him and this old man started preaching The gospel according to a drinking man He said, I've lived on Whiskey Road the last ten years or so Sleeping out in the cold here in Chicago Then he pointed to a neon cross Only two words were written He said, Mister, this one thing I know Jesus saves, Jesus saves If he didn't I wouldn't be here today Jesus saves Jesus saves And when life and the bottle Take you to the bottom Jesus saves When I got home that night I reached for my bottle and begin to pour the whiskey down the drain I fell down on my knees I cried, Jesus, save me, please and Since that night I've never been the same Jesus saves, Jesus saves And if he didn't, 
I wouldn't be here today Jesus saves Jesus saves And when life and the bottom Take you to the bottom Jesus saves Now if your soul is lost Just look up to that cross All you have to do just believe Jesus saves Jesus saves Jesus saves Jesus saves And when life and the bottle Take you to the bottom Jesus saves awesome testimony. What an awesome man of God Dixie Pebworth is. And Dixie, uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that are listening right now to this testimony. A lot of them want to help you do what God has called you to do. So tell the people right now what your needs are right now, Pastor. Yeah, the first thing is prayer. I need prayer because I'm frontline ministry and I deal with the worst of the worst and the best of the best. And Prayer is first. I need financial blessing, financial help. Uh, you know, right now I put my name on the line for a construction uh, note in order to get this motel up and running. Since December, I've had over 50 applications for my sober living program, but I'm so full I can't help anyone else right now. And uh, in that, you know, I could use financial blessing. I could also use in-kind donations. Uh, we literally, Gary, have people come to us with just two socks, and they don't have nothing. They don't have no clothes. They don't have no hygiene items. They don't have no, no pillows. They don't have no blankets. And so those are things that we could use, you know, across the board. We're set up right now that when someone comes to us, we're able to support them for at least 30 to 60 days before they get a job and before they start giving back into the ministry. Because everything here, you know, it's a hand up to us. It's not a hand out. Uh, we teach them to fish. We don't just give them fish. So that means a lot because when a person finds their purpose, then they find their life. But yeah, the needs, you know, prayer, financial blessing, uh, in-kind donations. You know, if you ever want to see our program or see our ministry, contact me. Uh, I have a book of my testimony called Death Was My Next Step. Uh, I'd be glad to share it with anyone, Gary, that, who might want to. If they want to know more about our program, they can go to wingsoffreedomok.com. It's wingsoffreedomok.com. Wingsoffreedomok.com is all one word, .com, and you'll pull up our website, and uh, that's a way to reach us, or you can go to God's Shining Light uh, Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that we have a website there for God's Shining Light as well to where you want to know more about us or how to contact us or how to get in touch with me. I have an email uh, called Dixie at PastorDixie.com, and Dixie is just like it says, D-I-X-I-E. God gave me that name. He chose that name, and I tell people, once you know me, you'll never forget me. One of my first verses that I ever learned was Jeremiah 33.3, which says, Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. 
And God has answered that prayer to me over and over again, Gary. It's just been an awesome blessing and an awesome journey with the living God. Miracles upon miracles, intervention, deliverance, salvation, healing. Uh, it's just amazing to see Jesus work in these last days. And as the world gets darker and darker, uh, the gospel the gospel is going to get brighter and brighter. And so I just, you know, want to encourage your listeners to reach out to Jesus and, and, and call upon his name, and he'll be there. I remember the night, the end of my road, in a motel in Nashville, searching for hope. In my hand was a Bible I read as a child But on the table was a bottle It was driving me wild I poured the whiskey into the glass I prayed it would help me Forget my past Then I read how Jesus Died on that tree And I poured out the whiskey And I fell down on my knees And that night old Jack Daniels Met John 3.16 God's word broke the hold that he had over me. I traded Tennessee whiskey for Calvary's tree. That night, old Jack Daniels met John 3:16. Remember, 
I said I was going to ask you a question? Well, the question is, if you died right now, do you know if you would go to heaven? If you were standing at the gates of heaven and the angel asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, friends, there's only one answer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus has a plan and a purpose for your life, just like he did for my life, just like he did for Pastor Dixie's life. God has a purpose and God has a plan for you, and he is just waiting for you to cry out to him and ask him to come into your life. Pray a simple little prayer with me right now. Pray, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Lord, I surrender my heart to you. I surrender my life to you. Take out my old heart. Lord, give me a new heart. Give me a new spirit, a new life, and I will follow you with your help, by your grace, all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, friends, if you prayed that prayer, then give us a call here at Lonesome Road Ministry at 618-383-2107. And we're going to end today's program with my testimony in song. It's called At the Foot of the Tree. Without hope, 18 wheels of lonesome at the end of the road. In my hand was a track the preacher had read, his words still echoing in the back of my head. I felt so ashamed when I thought of my past. Hey drivers, we appreciate you letting us ride along with you in the cab and you can contact us at 618-383-2107 or you can log on to our website at lonesomeroad.org and check us out on the web you can listen to all of our radio programs on our website on our broadcast from the past page so check it out and if you ask jesus christ into your heart then give us a call and let us know been lost I left a lifetime of misery at the foot of the tree those 18 wheels are rolling down that old lonesome road and I shared the good news Wherever I go Yes, there's been a change I'm not the man I used to be And I tell everybody What's happened to me How I felt so ashamed When I thought of my past But I called his name This chance could it be my last Then I saw Jesus hanging on that tree And I lifted up my heart from down on my knees Today I met Jesus at 
the foot of the cross Broken hearted and lonesome So long I've been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree Then I saw Jesus Hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart From down on my knees Today I met Jesus At the foot of the cross Broken hearted and lonesome So long I'd been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree